Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to More Outdoors. More Outdoors is hosted by the wildlife journalist Chester Moore. Chester is the recipient of the Mossy Oak Outdoors Legacy Award, Texas Soil and Conservation District Conservation of the Year, and was named a Hero of Conservation by Field and Stream Magazine. He is the founder of Kingdom Zoo Wildlife Center. He has won more than 100 awards for writing, photography, and radio on topics of the outdoors, and believes live radio is the best way to celebrate a love of the great outdoors welcome to the more outdoors this is the wildlife journalist chester moore and uh man i'm a little tiny bit sunburnt and a little windburnt and spent some time down in um southeastern louisiana along holly beach today and down into cameron around the pass and me and my buddy daniel stark were down there surveying for some stuff we're working on for a wildlife journalist property the property I found it and uh, we were down the Cameron Pass down by the ferry seeing if we could get a glimpse of Pinky the Dolphin the um, pink we know there's at least one uh, albino dolphin that resides uh, in southwest Louisiana I've had the privilege of seeing Pinky on three different occasions and know it was spotted earlier this spring and often it's around that Cameron Ferry you can get a glimpse of it because you can see that thing for like a country mile was able to see um, several uh, dolphins feeding, and uh, including um, a mother and juvenile, which is really cool. And um, but we're not able to spot the pink dolphins, so we're gonna have to wait till we go back and um, get a boat and go back. But we were also surveying an area around Holly Beach because of all of the rain and the runoff and um, all the the floodwaters and all this stuff. The last week, we were concerned or, or, or curious about what we might find on that beach. And what's been really interesting to me over the years is I have seen lots of dead stuff on that beach and I don't see anywhere else. I've seen dead dolphins. I've seen dead um, sea turtles. I've seen a lot of stuff. There was a sperm whale. I kid you not, a full-grown sperm whale. I didn't see it, but there was a sperm whale last year that washed last October on Holly Beach, Louisiana. I mean, that's crazy to think about that. And most people don't even realize that we have sperm whales in the Gulf of Mexico, much less washing up on a southwestern Louisiana beach. But that stuff is out there. And uh, just trying to keep a survey, because it's always seemed weird to me that that area has that much stuff. Um, that, that definitely the best beach for shells in our, in our region, uh, without any question. Found some cool shells there today. But it's, it's, um, it's weird that you have the marine mammals and the sea turtles and the things like that um, that, are, that are washing up more. And I don't know if it's maybe a harder area to enforce and more poaching stuff happens, or if it's just a current, which is kind of my take, that the reason you have more shells and stuff wash up in an area is because of maybe more currents that are pushing more things, you know, some of those kind of things in, in where they're maybe dying in the Gulf out to that part of the world. But it's it's a unique area, and if you really, if you hit the Texas line at Pleasure Island, go across the Causeway Bridge and drive down the Cameron, it's pretty remote. I mean, there's there's houses probably... You know, there might be 500 people to live between there and Cameron. Um, just not a lot of folks, a lot of uh, beautiful marsh, and um, a, a, lot, a lot of shoreline, a lot of good fishing. 
And it's just a shame our water clarity isn't better around here. But um, it's not exactly, you know, beautiful beach in terms of, you know, you want to go out and stick your foot in the water. But it's definitely um, an area to go out and see the natural world. And that's really what, you know, what turns me on. I just wish we had clearer water so I could do some snorkeling out around the beachfronts. I've, I've really enjoyed snorkeling on beachfronts. I've got to do it and I've dove on beachfronts too in Cozumel. But um, doing some in Orange Beach, Florida, doing some coming up soon in, um, not Orange Beach, Florida, Orange Beach, Alabama. We'll be doing some soon in Florida and for some uh, a blog series I'm working on. So just try to keep an eye on what's going on out there. And um, the last time I was there, I did see a dead dolphin. And glad I didn't see one this time. Glad that none of that stuff was out there. And um, because, you know, when you kind of deal with what I call the animal underground and you really start looking beneath the surface and, and, and monitoring what's going on, you see some weird stuff happening. And um, the number of dolphin killings along the Gulf Coast, you know, we had the one here in, or- in Orange County where I'm from a few years back with the teens shot the one with a fishing arrow. And um, we've also had incidents of um, people killing dolphins um, along the Florida coast and different areas. And it seems like a little bit of animosity toward old Flipper there, you know. And I'm like, you have to be really twisted not to like dolphins. Now, I know there's certain fishermen don't like them because they pull fish off their lines and that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, and it was really weird to me when the flounder debate was going on uh, 10 years ago. And I was on the committee that helped make those regulation proposals to Parks and Wildlife, and I was for years trying to get flounder regulation changes. But the the, the, the tonight's not about flounder; it's about the dolphin thing because I had numerous people suggest that the, what we need to do to improve flounder populations is kill dolphins. I literally had people emailing me very seriously that you know because flounder eat a lot. I mean, dolphin eat a lot of flounder. They said, if you want to help the flounder population, you start killing dolphins. There are too many dolphins out there. And I'm thinking, who in their right mind thinks what we're going to do is we're going to like set up sharpshooters on the beach and little Susie and Billy are going to see a dolphin gets brains blown out by a 30 odd six. I mean, I don't, I don't understand that line of thinking, you know, because to start off with dolphins were here with flounder before we were after flounder. Okay. Um, also, the same year, had someone say that the redfish were the problem because the redfish were eating all the little flounder, and there were too many redfish in the open commercial season of redfish. And I'm like, once again, redfish were here, flounder were here. Man's the problem. Restrict what we're doing. And that kind of happens with all of our resources. And we're going to talk tonight, and we're going to be really questioning some of the management things that we look at in nature and how we like to blame nature when we're a problem a lot of times, you know, and we have easier solutions, but sometimes it's not what we want, you know, and we're going to talk about some of those things tonight, ranging from fisheries to waterfowl and kind of starting off with this thing with blaming the dolphins, you know, I mean, how, how crazy is that, you know, and we're going to, we're going to shoot dolphins. I mean, there, there's a thing called the Marine Mammal Protection Act, and then you can't kill a dolphin and there's no reason to, you know, but, um, these things happen, and there are people who think like this out there, and it kind of scares me sometimes. I'm like, these, there's really those people out there that want to do this, but we're going to address those things head on and talk about how silly some of the stuff that we're trying to do is and uh, how it really has not a lot to do with any common sense conservation, and it has a lot more to do with what people want to do. So we come back on more Outdoors. We're going to talk about this, but we're going to talk about it in the context of hogs. We're doing something 
that could really damage the effort to control feral hogs, and no one wants to admit it. We'll talk about that when we come back on More Outdoors. Now, back to more outdoors with Chester Moore on News Talk 560 KLVI. Welcome back to more outdoors on News Talk 560 KLVI. This is the Wildlife Journalist Chester Moore. You can check out my blog at thewildlifejournalist.com. TheWildlifeJournalist.com. Click on the link on the right side, and you can enter your email and subscribe to the blog. And get, uh, I, I, you know, once to twice a week, we throw an update out there, trying to get really interesting, esoteric type stories and in-depth stuff. And um, I said right before the break, we're going to talk about um, some aquatic stuff right now. And um, this was just funny. It was a story I was working on for Texas Fishing Game, and it really made me think back. It was about garfish attacks, right? Um, I remember growing up and hearing a story about someone who was swimming too close to a trot line on Toledo Bend, which seems like a bad idea, the hooks, you know, and allegedly a garfish bit their leg and got a hold of them. And, and I remember as a kid, kind of freaked me out a little bit because we were always gar fishing and gar are really like intense looking fish anyway, you know, but uh, that's the only gar attack I ever heard. But I remember hearing someone say, oh, when I was a kid, there were gar attacks all the time. So I did some research on the alleged gar attacks. And you can look back. There's an author named Keith Sutton. Keith Sutton's a great outdoor writer who's really made his name writing about catfish a lot and done probably more on gar than any. I'm probably number two on gar in terms of number of articles published. Keith Sutton's written some really good stuff, and he had found records of a gar attack around New Orleans in like the early 1900s. But what happened around that area that all the restaurants would dump all their food in the water around. Out, people would like sit there with their foot in the water, feet in the water, fishing, and supposedly someone got bit by a gar or whatever. That's the only gar attack that we had actually, and was around that time. And there's been, you know, if you've ever swam in the Natchez River, the Sabine River, you know, if you've ever swam in Choke Canyon Reservoir, Toledo Bend, Sam Rayburn, anywhere in the South, you've been around alligator garfish and long nose garfish and stuff, and. They're on attacks. They're not an aggressive fish. They're, they're a very interesting, intelligent fish. But people make something out of the garfish that they're not, you know, and the garfish are, um, in Parks and Wildlife, has really started to pay a lot of attention. I salute them for, you know, putting restrictions on one alligator garfish a day that can, be, that can be taken. And that's mainly for bow fishing. I mean, there's recreational gar, rod and reel, which I, I engage in. I haven't in a while, but I engage in that. But it's mainly for bow fishing. That's where more alligator garfish are killed other than the commercial side of things. And learning that garfish don't spawn every year. You know, there's water conditions make a difference, and they take a long time to be able to spawn. And there's a lot we don't know about the species. And Texas is like the last haven for good numbers other than maybe Mobile Bay in Alabama for alligator garfish. And just a lot about this species we don't know. But you can take attacking people off the list. You know, could someone get attacked? Sure. You know, but the chances that people have been attacked by groupers, you know, but take that off your list of fears. You know, that's a river monster. You don't have to worry about attacking you as a garfish. And um, there's a, I'm a lot more worried about flesh eating bacteria in the water than garfish, sharks, stingrays, all that combined, you know. But you got to you got to look at garfish as just an amazing creature. 
And um, someone recently asked me, how big do I think garfish got in the past? We know from records there are gar up to over eight, eight and a half feet long. But I have no doubt before commercial fishing, um, before bow fishing, before the gun was really a big factor, um, if you go back in the 1800s, I would think there are probably garfish in places like the Sabine River and Mississippi River, 12 foot plus. Uh, my dad had a garfish when my dad when gill nets were were legal <laughs> back in the late 60s. My dad in Burton's Ditch had a gill net, and they had a 14 foot boat. And the gar's head was at the front of the boat, and its tail was almost at the back. He said it was a 12 foot gar. Uh, I have seen garfish in a section of the Sabine River, which I will not disclose, um, with tails. Gar roll. They roll to get air. And I've seen tails. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I saw them multiple times in the same spot. I saw garfish tails that were close to two feet wide. Huge, monster garfish. Those are probably 10-foot gar. There's still monsters out there. But there probably were 12 to 15-feet gar in the past. I have no doubt about that. And it's an interesting thing to think about such a, an incredible fish being in our waterways. I grew up gar fishing. We love to eat garfish. I mean, I hope they get me a couple of gar this year. But we have to go by those bag and, and, and limits and stuff to, to restrict harvest on these big apex predators. You know, they used to be said, well, I'm, and this is where I'm, I'm tying all this in, that we need to kill the garfish because they're wiping out the bass and they're, you know, and all and the crappie and all this stuff. And there was a study done on Sam Rayburn in the 1980, late 1980s, and they found that like 97%, somewhere in that name, 90 plus, I would safely say 90 plus percent of what garfish ate were shad. Okay. And there were other stuff. There was a um, there was other gar, there was a bass, there was a crop or two, a catfish, birds, ducks, but garfish typically eat a lot of other stuff like shad. And, um, and carp. And so it's, you know, and look, give me a break. We got more bass than we know how to shake a stick at. We got more crappie. So let's not try to wipe out a predatory fish and say, oh, we got to kill this thing. We got to justify our killing of all of these so we can have more of these. We got plenty of those. That time is past. It's time, it's time we stop, you know, using those ridiculous justifications because they're not hurting anything. The garfish isn't out there hurting our fisheries. Our fisheries are booming in freshwater. Those ex I'm here to announce those excuses are officially dead, right? So managing garfish with a, with a bag limit system and, and protecting them in spawning areas and stuff is crucial to a truly amazing fish. We don't, still don't know that much about, you know. Um, I've done a lot talking with Parks and Wildlife and things about gar numbers and They've been studying them on the Trinity River in the last decade or so, and they've been putting little, uh, little uh, transmitter devices. And under the I-10 bridge, um, right off of the Trinity River, they have pingers right there. And they will, they will track gar that move back and forth from these areas, and they know when the gar comes by. I mean, how cool is that? Um, I salute our Texas Parks and Wildlife Department for having cutting-edge information on garfish. As a matter of fact, they're doing a survey right now. You can go to tpwd.state.gov and they have a survey. You'll see up there on the page of, um, you know, what kind of management strategies would you approve of for alligator garfish, you know, because you know, it's not just one gar. It's alligator garfish. There's, it's, it's the issue. Um, there's spotted garfish. There's short-nosed garfish, and there is the long-nosed garfish. And the two that get biggest, are by, alligator garfish by far, and second would be the long-nosed. 
Um, but there's when they get big, there's no mistaking them. They're smaller. It's harder to tell whether you have an alligator garfish or you have a short nose or a spotted, just depending because it's small and you're going out there. And you're not going to harvest and eat that thing anyway, you know. So, um, you know, I have uh, full disclosure, I, the biggest, I, I shot a gar in 2000 with a bow and I ate it. It was six foot seven inches long, had the head mounted, a really cool animal. I was proud of being able to take it, eat. My buddy Harlan Bigfoot Hatcher, uh, I didn't have a machete back then and, and it, it, with me at the time, and he um, he cleaned it. But I wouldn't kill that guard today. A guard that big, I would let go. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Go. No telling how old that fish is. I, would, would, I, would, I, would I kill and eat a five-footer? You bet. Um, but I wouldn't kill the really extra big ones now just because, you know, they're, they're declining. And I think it's better to, you know, if you're going to harvest one, harvest a little bit smaller one. But you don't need to be shooting the little ones either. The little bitty, what, what, what is that going to do? You know, I mean, I don't understand that. So what's that going to do for you? You're not going to help you. You know, um, so just, um, you know, we got to conserve our resources, but also realize that gar, and by the way, we don't eat gar balls. I like gar balls are good, but we always ate it fried and we put it on the barbecue for a grill. So, you know, great meat, great fish and uh, something that needs to be talked about more because it's one of those fish that, you know, um, doesn't have a whole lot of advocates out there. You know, great writers like Keith Sutton and uh, Jeremy Wade with River Monsters when he came to Texas a decade ago and, and caught him in the Trinity River. And the guides up there in the Trinity have done a great job of raising awareness of this unique fish, you know, that I've been catching my whole life. And, um, you know, there's nothing like for me like hanging into a big old garfish. You know, they're a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, I saw a garfish today in the Cameron Channel, and it kind of brought memories back of that for me because there used to be days of just sitting on the bank garfishing. And um, there's part of me that wants to turn my fishing back into just sitting on the bank. Now, I don't have a boat, but, I mean, just sitting on the bank and garfishing and catfishing and just simplicity fishing again, you know. Um, and there's part of me that, that wants to go that direction completely in my personal fishing life, and I may head that direction because it's more relaxing and um, it just brings back the, the, the reason for fishing again. You know, when I was a kid, we went fishing because we enjoyed it, but we ate it. We were pretty poor for a period in the 80s when the oil industry was busted. And I didn't realize we were going fishing to go. We'd throw a cast net, and maybe we could afford a box of shrimp. And um, we'd go throw a cast net. And what we ate, what we caught, we ate. I remember eating a lot of fried fish between, you know, uh, being about five and about eight. And we did eat a lot of, a lot of fish. And... Um, it was good. It was uh, something that we did together. I remember going with my mom and dad, and we'd I, I'd put the cornmeal on it and roll it in the cornmeal and all that stuff. And that was an important part of my formative years and learning to appreciate. But I knew it was something that we ate. You know, there wasn't a lot of just killing stuff. We killed and we ate it. We need to get back to killing and eating. If we're going to kill it, we need to eat it. And I think that's um, that's something that because that's good stewardship. It doesn't it doesn't promote waste. You know, and. Um, Glad I grew up gar fishing and glad I grew up catching drum on the side of the road of Highway 87, what we call the Twin Lakes, and glad I grew up doing all that stuff. So um, sometimes you need to reflect on those things to look to where we need to go into the future, you know. And who would have known 
that the international community would look at gar fishing in Texas as like a, a bucket list thing. Soon as Jeremy Wade put that on River Monsters, it became a thing for European. I was in the Segre River in Spain in 2005, and um, in the same stretch of river that, that Jeremy Wade uh, fished in for River Monsters, and I believe this might have predated River Monsters, but the guys over there knew about the gar in Texas, and were like just blown away by the gar. I was blown away by the by the giant catfish, you know. Dream come true, catching a seven-foot-plus Wells catfish that weighed 157 pounds. And this was in this off-season. They usually, in the winter, that fish would have weighed 200 pounds. I mean, it was incredible. And my wife caught one that weighed 163. Just, just stunning. But these people in Spain were interested in coming to Texas to catch garfish. International following for a great fishery here in Texas. So I um, thought we'd tackle that topic a little bit. And then we're going to shift gears again when we come back on More Outdoors. Now, back to more outdoors with Chester Moore on News Talk 560 KLVI. Welcome back to more outdoors on News Talk 560 KLVI. This is Chester Moore and uh, having a good time here. Is that Alien Ant Farm doing Smooth Criminal? I'm like, I think that's Smooth Criminal, the Michael Jackson song. But I remember that band did that. That was crazy. It might, might have been their only hit or whatever, but it's a pretty cool version of that song. Um, by the way, I just want to make an official announcement. We do have the greatest bump music in the history of wildlife and outdoor radio. You know, if you listen to a lot of other stuff, you're going to get kind of bored on the bump music. And when I first started doing this show and I was just 25 years old, I'm like, we have to have like metal and rock. Because even if you don't dig it, you know it means something. You know there's like an intensity or something like that. But we've been talking about a lot tonight. We've covered a whole lot of ground here on um, More Outdoors tonight. And really um, have kind of covered the gamut and asking some of these questions that no one wants to ask when it comes to wildlife conservation. Um, why, are, why are ranches wiping out predators when they're trying to wipe out hogs at the same time they're charging a thousand bucks to kill a hog? Interesting question. So, uh, you know, uh, do people really want to open up a season on uh, dolphins? And that's not going to happen, but it's just sad to me that people would say, hey, I got a great solution for the, the you know, the fact of there's not enough fish, we're going to kill the dolphins. It just makes no sense, and it's just irrational. But um, we ha- I, I kind of like to ask these questions of why we do these things to think about what's going on with the psyche out there. What are people thinking, and why are people out there um, adri- uh, you know, thinking this way? It's, it's really, really bizarre stuff. But um, I've had a great, great time. Um, on the show the last few months, and we got some really cool stuff going into the deeper parts of summer, some of the investigations we're doing with the wildlife journalist. And I want to talk about one of those things right now is we've been talking about the sea snake issue in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, We had a report um, probably four years ago from a relative of mine who said they saw what they thought was a banded sea snake, which would be a banded sea crate, K-R-A-I-T, in the Gulf of Mexico. And they're not supposed to be there. There are no sea snakes native to the Gulf of Mexico. And then someone unrelated that never talked to him doesn't know this relative of mine comes to our Kingdom Zoo Wildlife Center. Sees a picture I have on the wall of a banded sea crate and says, I saw one of those at High Island off one of the rigs. The spot he saw had this sighting 
was about 25 nautical miles from my relative had this sighting. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, especially because he didn't just say a sea snake. He said that one, and the guy was bringing me a snake. It's one of the guys that speaks about snakes in their Latin. He doesn't like to use, you know, banded sea crate. He uses the, the Latin name for it. So I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. So we did a blog. We've done some radio broadcasts, and I have I been getting reports. I have got detailed reports from charter boat captains off Florida, divers off the Yucatan Peninsula, um, people reporting seeing uh, sea snakes on the beaches in Florida and different areas of the Gulf Coast. So is there a possibility, is what I'm asking, is there a possibility that the ballast of ships, because people don't realize these big tankers and stuff come in, they, they, they suck in water to, uh, you know, to equalize and to be able to take, uh, you know, uh, work with different depths and shallower waters. Like you come in Sabine, it's shallower than you come in some other ports and things like that. And, and the World Wildlife Fund estimates there are, get ready for this, 7,000 different species of organisms a day, mainly fish and bivalves and mollusk and stuff, but in the ballast of ships in, in the world, 7,000 species. And we're looking at some reports that are pretty deep, trying to find any, any scientific evidence for sea snakes being in those. But is it possible that sea snakes have moved in from ship ballast? My hypothesis is that they are not in numbers enough maybe to have breeding numbers, but maybe there are scattered enough numbers of them out there uh, that people are seeing some in the Gulf of Mexico because the ships are supposed to dump their ballast water um, in, in the mid, kind of mid-ocean before they come into shore. Now, is it possible that there's been some sea snakes? Sea snakes would probably survive out there. I mean, they live in the sea. They could get on rafts of sargassum and stuff like that, and it's it's a possibility. So something we're investigating because there's so much anecdotal evidence for this out there. And I find I find it fascinating that every one of these reports was the same species of sea snake. It wasn't or a basic variety, a banded sea snake, which would be a banded sea crate. I believe there are several varieties of those. And it wasn't the more common um, uh, on, like, if, if they came through the Panama Canal, it would probably be the yellow belly sea snake. I do have one report of yellow belly, which is interesting, but the rest of them are all the banded variety. Now, um, I thought that some of these sightings could be eels. There is a, uh, there's a banded snake eel out there, and uh, it would be easy to mistake for a snake, but I've had, like, a charter captain tell me, uh, no, I watched it for 10 minutes swimming around. It wasn't an eel. And I'm like, oh, man, this is this is interesting stuff. So these are the kind of things we're trying to ask here on More Outdoors and in the Wildlife Journalist, thewildlifejournalist.com blog. So having a lot of fun with that stuff and, uh, and doing some investigations as well with it. I mean, it's it's a lot of fun to, to dig into some of these topics and, and really um, try to Try to make people think and use all of you to become wildlife journalists by your videos, your testimonies, your information, your photos. All of you have an opportunity with our smartphones these days to be eyes and ears. And if you got a, a video or a photo or something strange you don't know how to identify or at a place, email me at chester at kingdomzoo.com. That's chester at kingdomzoo.com. And uh, we will um, look into what you got. So we're going to take our final break of tonight and come back on more outdoors.
Now, back to more outdoors with Chester Moore on News Talk 560 KLVI. Whoa, I can't believe it's been like almost an hour. That's mind-boggling, isn't my ace producer, Courtney, in there? And um, it's mind-boggling we've been here almost an hour. Now, um, a few weeks ago, we mentioned that uh, the, the, the Fish and Game Department in Montana had examined and put the word out on a very strange-looking canid that was killed. And they had an official DNA test on that. And they said it came back as a northern gray wolf. Just a very odd-looking wolf. My suspicion was some kind of a hybrid, maybe, between you know feral dogs and a wolf or something. But they said it was straight-up gray wolf. So anyway, just want to give you information on that. But we're going we're gonna to be blogging on that at thewildlifejournalist.com and show some more photos and the full details of what they, what they found on that stuff. You know, the DNA thing really opens up the doors to what's um, these mystery animals. But I wish they would take the fur if it's still got good enough DNA in a, in a museum specimen in Montana of a very strange-looking wolf-like creature that's been talked about for years and compare it to this. That would be really interesting but i don't think anyone's done that yet maybe maybe because of the publicity this thing did um maybe that will you know maybe that'll get people interested in and taking a look at that it's not exactly something that's going to change everything for wildlife but it's certainly interesting for those of us who have an interest in kind of the esoteric stranger views of wildlife out there maybe even those into things like cryptozoology you know so um, it's, it's, it amazes me every week how fast this show moves, but I always like to end with something to make you think or end with something to inspire you. And tonight I want to end with something to inspire you, and that is the thought about our oceans and waterways, particularly the oceans. The amount of biodiversity that exists in our waterways and exists in our oceans is absolutely incredible. I live on the Texas Gulf Coast, and as I sat today in the southwestern Louisiana Gulf Coast surveying the water, I was blown away. I thought about, man, my God created some incredible stuff out here. You look at the water, and you see you know, pelicans, brown pelicans and white pelicans flying over, and the gulls and everything scavenging along the beach, and you see all the shells that represent the bivalves and all these other creatures. I saw sea anemones on the beach today that had washed up, and you think, wow, what is in your depths, ocean? What is really, really out there? And I was blown away by it. And I got to thinking, you know, there was a sperm whale washed up here. There are sperm whales out there, and then there are sharks, and there are, there are sea turtles, and there are, you know, not just a species of sea turtle, but numerous species of sea turtles. And then there, then there are eels and there are octopuses and there are squids and there are giant squids and all that stuff is right out there in our waterways you know growing up and to this day Jacques Cousteau the late great ocean explorer the inventor of scuba itself um, was such an influence of mine still is and I watched a clip of his on one of the Amazon Prime programs it was free with Amazon Prime and watching him explore the Antarctic and I was like man what what a trailblazer um, it was absolutely amazing to see them exploring that. But we don't have to go that far. You can put on, if you live in clear water parts of Texas, or if you go down to South Padre, you know, or you go down to Florida or the Alabama coast, you can put on some flippers and a snorkel and a mask and explore right in your waterways. You can take a quick, easy vacation and do that. You can go learn how to dive. 
You can simply go fishing. You can go on the beach with your kids and explore what the ocean has to offer. We need to take care of our oceans. We need to make sure that our oceans are healthy, that our fisheries are healthy. They're not being raped and pillaged by some of the overseas commercial interests that are coming into our oceans and just destroying everything with long-line vessels and stuff. We need to make sure that shark finning is abolished and uh, that we can take care of our fisheries. But we also have to make sure we have clean waters because we have beautiful things. The ocean is an incredible, powerful, even ominous thing. Every time I'm on the ocean, I'm in awe, but a little bit frightened, you know, because of its power. I've experienced some of that power, but I've also experienced its majesty. And I thank God for the ocean and what it's meant for our life. I thank God for seafood. I thank God for sushi that comes out of the ocean. But I also thank God for the opportunity to see the incredible biodiversity Be inspired by our oceans. Go to your local beach. Look out there and go. There's some cool stuff. Take your kids out there and enjoy time on the beach. Enjoy time around the water. Be safe and have a great weekend. God bless you. Enjoy your time in the wild. Thank you for listening to More Outdoors. To keep up with Chester's work, go to KingdomZoo.com. Find him on Facebook or at KingdomZoo on Instagram. Read his weekly columns in the Port Arthur News and Orange Leader and monthly in Texas Fish and Game. And join us next Friday at 6 for more outdoors. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.